The following resources from Two Journeys. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God. Please visit twojourneys.org for more resources. Tonight, Christian is finally going to lose his burden. Aren't you excited about that? He's been hauling that thing around. The burden, uh, which first came upon him because he was reading in the scriptures about the coming judgment on the world, the wrath to come, uh, the burden represented what? Represented sin. And specifically, his sense of guilt, a crushing burden on his back. And he was persuaded to flee the wrath to come, and so he left his home, which was the city of destruction, and he began his journey. Evangelist pointed to the wicked gate, and he couldn't see the gate when he first started, but there was a kind of a faint light, and he began heading in that direction. He put his fingers in his ears, and was he calling out, life, life, eternal life, and his neighbors were calling out after him, his family as well, but he would not be turned to the left or to the right, but ran for that light. Uh, then Obstinate and Pliable came out with him, as you remember, and they were towns members of his and tried to persuade him to turn back. Uh, but uh, as the conversation went on, it was Pliable that eventually was persuaded to go on with him. Obstinate was, re- was obstinate, he would not turn, or would not go, and, and so considered them both fools and went back quickly to the city. But Pliable went with him for a little while until they came to the slew of despond, uh, discouragement that comes with conviction of sin. You know, we kind of bypass the conviction of sin, and so we may not be familiar with the slew of despond. But what it means is a sense that nothing can save you, that you're going to be lost, that you're going to perish, you're going to sink down under the judgment of God. And so uh, both of them were in that slew, that mucky mess. But uh, Pliable got out very quickly as a result of the fact that he did not have a burden on his back. He had no weight pressing him down. There was no real ultimate sense of conviction of sin. And so it wasn't very long before he was able to get out. The Christian needed help, and God sent help by the name of the man help who lifted him up and put him back on the path. Uh, the path headed toward the wicked gate. He got there and he knocked uh, at the wicked gate. But before he got there, I'm skipping an important thing. After he got out of the slew of despond, he met Mr. Worldly Wise Man and... Mr. Worldly Wise Man was from the town of Carnal Policy. Uh, Carnal Policy means a fleshly way of thinking is all it means. And what did Mr. Worldly Wise Man, what counselor advice did he give him concerning his burden? Get rid of that burden and you'll be fine, right? If you could just get rid of that sense, that pressing down burden on you, you'll be fine. Is that true? If you can get rid of that sense of guilt and condemnation before God, are you going to be fine? Well, it all depends how you lose it, right? (laughs) Okay. If you go to the town of, of uh, carnal policy and uh, you go to Mr. Legality or Morality, the town of Morality, and you listen to him, he, what advice is he going to give you? How is he going to tell you to get rid of your burden? Be a good person. Do a lot of good works. Do a lot of good deeds, right? And if you are a good person doing a lot of good works and a lot of good deeds, you can get rid of your burden. We talked about this last time and the time before. Is that true? Can you get rid of that crushing burden on your back if you are a good person? Yeah, in one sense you can, in that nobody else seemed to have the burden. The guys in our story tonight, the guys that jumped the, jumped the wall and came in, they never had a burden. Pliable never had a burden, right? So yes, you can get rid of that burden. Conviction of sin can disappear. But that doesn't mean your state is fine. You may still be under the wrath of God, just no conviction. And why? Because you feel good about yourself. Did, uh, did the Pharisees run around with a burden on their back? Not at all. And yet Jesus said, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. In saying that, what was Jesus saying about the Pharisees? They're going to hell. That's what he's saying. So the way of working out your salvation by good works and law and all that does not succeed. Now, Christian, as he tried to get to the town of morality... What happened to him? Yeah, the, he, it got steeper and steeper and then almost seemed to bend over backward on him so that it was fit to crush him. What did this represent? It represented the law. It represented Mount Sinai and that he could not keep it. 
and it certainly did not help him with his burden. It only made his burden heavier. Then evangelist came and warned him sternly that he was off the path and that he needed to get back. And so he did. He got back and almost like he was when he first ran out of the city of destruction. Nothing was good enough for him until he could finally get back on the path. Finally, he gets to the wicked gate. He knocks on the gate, you know, knock and the door will be open to you. The door opens and the guy whisks him in there quickly. And just at that moment, a bunch of arrows hit the door and uh, he manages to get inside. And those arrows are coming from Beelzebub because he's got a castle right near the door. And just as you're about to enter, he's trying to destroy you. He would love to do it, but uh, he can't get at it. Well, just as he comes in, uh, he's entered, and now he's finally through the wicked gate. Now, after that, we discussed last time, he went to the interpreter's house. Now, who is the interpreter? What's going on at the interpreter's house? Just by way of review. What's that? He showed him stuff. That's right. That's great. What stuff did he show him? picture on the wall that was the first thing he showed him and the picture on the wall was of a serious minded individual his eyes looking up to heaven and all that and he said this picture represents the only kind of man who can be your guide on your journey represents a serious minded christian perhaps a pastor we don't really know for sure but who else is going to be a guide on your journey but somebody like that uh what else did he show him who can the dusty room what did the dusty room represent a person's heart. That's right. Landis? That's right. So the, the somebody comes in and tries to clean up the room. So they're sweeping it up, sweeping it up, and it's just <coughs> choking smoke or dust everywhere. And then, finally, uh, what happens? Another gal, a damsel, uh, comes in and sprinkles some water everywhere. And then what happens? They can clean it up. What does this represent? Yeah. It represents the Holy Spirit and it represents grace. And when the Holy Spirit comes in and when grace comes in, you can clean your life up, but not before. So if you try to do it on your own effort, uh, it's just going to make a big mess of everything. Okay, so the dusty room, law and grace. Third was passion and patience, the two little, tw- little boys, remember? And what was, what was passion like? What was his whole thing? Say again? He was a man of the world, that's right. He was a little brat is what he was. And what did he want? What was his whole thing? He wanted his inheritance now. And he got it now, didn't he? And he enjoyed it for a while. But in the end, it was bitter for him because it was all run out. Joy was all gone and he was finished. Meanwhile, he is mocking patience who's doing what? What does patience do? Sitting and waiting patiently for his inheritance. And he's not going to get it now. And passion is mocking him saying, look at all the pleasures you're missing. Look at all this. And in the end, he gets a far greater inheritance and it just represents waiting for heaven, waiting for ultimate riches. And then the fourth was the fire against the wall and the bowl. You remember that one? What did that represent? What was going on? First of all, what did he see, Jim? As he... Would not go out. There it is. Christ is behind the wall secretly and the fire represents the work of grace in the heart or faith. The devil constantly trying to put it out but just cannot do it because Christ is secretly feeding in oil down in the bottom, right? And uh, why secretly? What's the point of the fact that Christ is hidden behind a wall feeding uh, oil into the bowl? Why is that important? If the devil saw him, he would sell. I hadn't thought of that one. That's good. The devil will get discouraged. Well, the devil's pretty persistent, I found. <laughs> he doesn't give up easily. But we don't see him. Do you feel it when Christ is sustaining your faith through a trial? Not really, but you made it through the trial and you're still a believer. You still love the Lord. And it was therefore Christ who secretly sustained your faith through grace. And so that's the image in the picture. I said to you at the time, of all these pictures in the interpreter's house, this one is the most encouraging to me. It's a sense in which the work of grace cannot be extinguished from your heart. But Christ is going to keep sustaining it and keep working in it. And then a fifth was that big, beautiful palace and uh, a bunch of wimps who can't get past all these armed guards, right? And then there's someone at a table taking a note of people that want to go into the palace. And then some heroic warrior comes up and says, write my name down. And he goes in and just has to battle his way in there takes gives and takes many wounds it says and finally he gets in there and enjoys himself in that palace what did this represent what do you think Liam? 
That's right. There's going to be struggles. There's going to be struggles. It's not going to be handed to you. Through many hardships we enter the kingdom of heaven. It's going to be hard. It's going to be a war. It's going to be a battle. And then sixth, despair. The man in the iron cage. And what a terrifying picture this is. What's the deal with this guy? Interpreter tells Christian, ask him what's going on with him. And what was this guy's situation, the man inside the iron cage? Say again. He had sin. He had given himself up to his lusts, he said. He had laid the rein to the neck of his lusts. And as a result, he had no hope of salvation. No hope whatsoever of salvation. Now, there's some unanswered questions about the man inside the iron cage. What are the questions that pop up in your mind as you look at this guy? Questions that almost are unanswered even at the end of the whole interaction. Landis? Was he truly a Christian or not? All right. Now, he says at one point, I was a fair professor of Christ and had good hopes for heaven, but now not any longer. So we don't know if he's ever a believer. What else? Yeah. That is the question. So we don't know if he's ever a believer or not, but then there's the flip side. We don't know if he's ever going to get out or not, right? It's just left on, we just don't know. Because later, uh, Christian and Hopeful are going to be in Doubting Castle and they get out of that place with the key of promise, right? So we don't really know, is he there permanently? He sure believes he's in there permanently though, that's for sure. He believes he will never get out and that God will never forgive him for his sin. And so that's a very terrifying state to be in, isn't it? And I would not recommend it for anybody. The point is, fear sin. Don't yield. Don't give in to it. Don't play with it. Stay away, lest you be like the man in the iron cage. And then finally, uh, we have the man who had that terrifying dream of Judgment Day. And he dreamt that all around him, people were taken. And he was, in the popular words, left behind. Uh, there was no one left. Everyone else was gone, and he was not taken. And what a terrifying picture that is of judgment. So those are the visions of... Um, uh, the interpreter's house, and they left him in a mingled state. Remember what the two things were? He said, this puts me into what? Hope and what was the other one? Fear. Hope and fear. Hope of what? Hope of what? Hope of eternal life, hope of heaven, hope of being inside that palace after you fought your way through, right? Fear of what? Fear of God's judgment, fear of sin, fear of disappointing God, fear of failure. So these things stay with Christian. And he says this is a sober-minded way. Now, Christian still has his burden on his back as he leaves the interpreter's house. And we begin on page 102 for those of you that have handed out. And I have no idea for those of you who brought your own copy. You'll just have to find wherever it is, all right? But uh, at last he's going to come to the cross. Now I saw in my dream that the highway up which Christian was to go was fenced on either side with a wall, and that wall was called salvation. Up this way, therefore, did burden Christian run, but not without great difficulty because of the load on his back. And so he's got a road, he's, and that road is called salvation. It's got a wall on each side. It's a safe way. I think about Isaiah 35, 8. You could write that one down. It's a great verse. And it speaks there of a highway called the way of holiness. And unbelievers do not travel on that way, on that road, but believers do. It's a safe way. It's a protected way. It's called the way of holiness, the way of righteousness. Isaiah 35, 8. So he's going up, up, uh, up this road, and he's trying to run, uh, but he's got this terrible burden on his back. He ran thus till he came at a place somewhat ascending. And upon that place stood a cross, and a little below in the bottom a sepulcher. So I saw in my dream that just as Christian came up with the cross, his burden loosed from off his shoulders and fell from off his back and began to tumble, and so continued to do till it came to the mouth of the sepulcher, where it fell in, and I saw it no more. Somebody say, Selah, right, Chris? <laughs> That's a great, great moment. What does this represent? That's right. It represents Christ. It represents Jesus' blood. And his burden is gone. You know, you can almost hear the burden on my back rolled or burden of my sin rolled away. It was there by faith. I received my sight and now I'm happy all the day, right? You always picture this burden rolling off. 
Now, the big question in Pilgrim's Progress is when was he saved, right? Well, if you ever read Grace Abounding to the Chief of Sinners, which is his autobiography, you never really can figure out when he's saved from that either. All we know is he was saved at some point. We don't really know. Was it at the wicked gate or was it at the cross? Does it really matter? All we know is that here at last he loses his sense of guilt and burden before the wrath of God. Yes, yes, but he did travel a good ways even before he got to the wicked gate. So he's already journeying out of the city of destruction, and we wouldn't think that he's regenerate at that point, just that God is drawing him. And at some point, he has faith in Christ. He's got the vision of, of, of the cross and of Christ. Either way, there's no doubt about it now, is there? He's lost his burden. It's rolled off of, this, off of his back down to the empty tomb, and he's free forever from it. And I just want you to stop and rejoice for a moment in your own salvation just take a minute and celebrate we don't do that the way we should i've been going over in matthew's gospel just the various accounts and i'm uh, in matthew 9 where jesus heals the paralytic the paralyzed man but before he heals him physically he looks at him and because of his faith he says take heart son your sins are forgiven now if anybody else said that it doesn't matter but when the judge of all the earth says that to you you're forgiven indeed and, and I can't imagine what it would be like to have Jesus look you right in the face like that and say your sins are forgiven. But by faith, that's happened to all of us, isn't it? Your sin is gone. It's rolled off your back and you'll never face it again. You're not under the condemnation of God if you're a child of God. Free forever. I love that picture. And so just praise God and thank Him for your salvation. Well, anyway, Christian uh, loses his burden and there... Bunyan, he says, I saw it no more. We never see it again. Then listen to this. I love this. Then was Christian glad and lightsome. Isn't that a great word? <laughs> lightsome. I used to go hiking. And did you ever go like for a long time? Maybe you didn't do this, but and have a really heavy pack on your back. I mean, with all of your equipment and all that sort of stuff. When you take it off, you feel like you're floating. You feel like, you know, like every step just like, like you're buoyant in the ocean. And that's about what Christian must have felt at that moment. He was glad and lightsome. And he said with a merry heart, he hath given me rest by his sorrow and life by his death. And there he stood still a while to look and to wonder. For it was very surprising to him that the sight of the cross should thus ease him of his burden. He looked, therefore, and looked again, even till the springs that were in his head sent the waters down his cheeks. So he's just staring there at the cross. I think there's so much value in doing that for us even now. If you look, if you have your Bibles, take a minute and look at Hebrews chapter 12. In <clears throat> verse 1 and 2, somebody read this for me. Hebrews 12, 1 and 2. Therefore, we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which it so easily ensnares us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. In 12.2, it says that we should look to Jesus. We should fix our eyes, our gaze on Christ and on his cross. And, you know, I think there's so much power in that. You know, we're not just one time to come to the cross, are we? You come to the cross every day. You come and remind yourself that your sins are forgiven. You come and realize that the power of sin is broken from you forever. We have to look, and I love how it says in Pilgrim's Progress, then I looked and I looked and then I looked again. You know, he just keeps looking and staring at the cross of Christ. And there will be value to you to stare at the cross of Christ until the day you're taken to heaven. You just keep looking and reminding that your debt is paid in full. Looking to Jesus, or as it says in the NIV, let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. He's the Alpha and he's the Omega. He began it in you and he's going to bring it all the way to completion. But you need to keep looking to Jesus. Keep looking at him. Isn't that marvelous? 
And so anyway, he keeps looking and looking, and he begins to weep. He's crying. Now, as he stood looking and weeping, behold, three shining ones came to him and saluted him with, Peace be to thee. This reminds me of the day that Jesus was raised from the dead, and he appears to his disciples in John chapter 20 and says to them twice, Peace to you. Right? What a wonderful, wonderful statement. There is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And it says, since we have been justified through faith, we have what? We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And so the angels come down from heaven and they minister and and give him a message. Peace be to thee. And so the first angel said, thy sins be forgiven thee. That's exactly what Jesus said to the paralyzed man. Your sins are forgiven. Then the second stripped him of his rags and clothed them with a change of raiment. Now, in Zechariah 3, you don't have to turn there, but there's a story of the high priest who's covered with these filthy, filthy garments. And the Lord, the angel of the Lord, speaks and says, take those wretched clothes off them and clothe them in a beautiful robe. What a beautiful picture this is. What does this represent, this change of raiment? Yeah, it represents Christ's righteousness, a gift of righteousness by faith, just given to you by faith. And so he's covered with this robe. Um, And then the third sets a mark in his forehead. Uh, What does this represent, this mark or a sealing work? What is this? What seals you as a Christian? What marks you as a Christian? The Holy Spirit. So this could represent the marking or sealing of the Spirit. Also, the Lord, it says, knows those who are his. It says that in 2 Timothy. He knows you. Amen. And I think about that. The Lord knows those who are his. Second Timothy. Why is that important? What does he say in Matthew 7? Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, didn't we not prophesy in your name and your name drive out demons and perform many miracles? Then what will he say to them? Away from me, I never knew you. He knows you if you're a Christian. And the issue is not, do you know him? That's important. The issue is, does he know you on judgment day? Now that's the issue. And so he puts a mark saying, I know him. He's one of mine. So he sets a mark on his forehead and he gives him a roll with a seal upon it. We're going to find out later what that roll is. Which he bade him look upon as he ran and that he should give it in at the celestial gate. So he's supposed to look at this scroll, this roll frequently and then hand it in when he gets to the celestial gate. And so they went their way. The angels leave. Then Christian gave three leaps for joy (laughs) and went on singing. That's another thing. Uh, I love this. Uh, in Matthew chapter 9, the next story after the paralytic is the calling of Matthew, Matthew the tax collector. I just I want to preach these things now. I, you know, I, We're doing foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests. That's the next sermon, but just Matthew's so rich. Anyway, uh, Matthew is challenged and he says, follow me. Jesus says, follow me. Leave your life, leave your tax collecting and come follow me. And that's a tough decision. He follows him. He comes to Christ. He walks with him. And what's the very next thing in Matthew 9? They have a party. They have a celebration at Matthew's house. And all of the tax collectors and and all the sinners were invited, and Jesus was there too. But unlike us, if we were invited to a party like that, Jesus, like when he touched the leper, has the power to transform it and make it a holy thing, an evangelistic encounter. But they had a celebration, and I think that's an amazing thing. And so there is joy in heaven, is there not? More joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than 99 that have no need of repentance. And so it's right to give three leaps for joy. Did you give three leaps for joy when you came to Christ? I don't know. Maybe you did. Well, you should have. Anyway, then Christian gave three leaps for joy and went on singing. Thus far did I come laden with my sin, nor could aught ease the grief that I was in till I came hither. What a place is this? Must here be the beginning of my bliss? Must hear the burden fall from off my back. Must hear the strings that bound it to me crack. Blessed cross, blessed sepulcher, blessed rather be the man that there was put to shame for me. Isn't that powerful? A little hymn of celebration for Jesus. Thank you for dying for me. Well, and I see in my dream that as he goes on, more adventures, he meets three men, simple, sloth, and presumption. And what are they doing? They're sleeping. (laughs) And they're bound with chains, you know, around their feet, with fetters upon their heels. Probably they fell asleep and then the evil one came and chained them up while they were sleeping. Simple means not understanding right doctrine. Sloth means lazy. And presumption means overconfident. 
you know, thinking everything's fine with me. I'll just rest here a while. Now, by the way, if I could kind of sum up from this point until the rest of the evening, the basic concept here that I get out of Pilgrim's Progress, this and then the hill difficulty, the arbor where he rests and falls asleep and then wakes up, and then Palace Beautiful where he goes in, basically the idea is that in the Christian life there's a mixture of trial and rest. There's a rhythm of hard times and refreshing times. And don't you find that to be true in your life? It's not all one and it's not all the other. It's not all feasting and it's not all famine. Um, If it were all the one or all the other, you would not complete your journey. If it were all feasting, you would become like these three, right? (laughs) Laying around, you know, popping grapes in your mouth, spiritually speaking, and just kicking back, right? Taking it easy. If it were nothing but the valley of humiliation or the valley of struggle, the hill difficulty, you would grow weary and discouraged and you would give up. And so he gives you a a, a mixture of trial and refreshment all the time. And those of you who have been in Christ longer than I, you know what I'm talking about. You're talking about severe trials and then in the middle of it there's sweet consolations, aren't there? And then you continue on. And that's what's going to happen from this point out. Well, these three represent just taking it easy and comfort. And Christian then does what a Christian brother should do. If you came to simple sloth and presumption, what should you do? If you really love the Lord and love the body of Christ, what should you do? Wake them up. up. Warn them. What are you doing? Right? We don't do that enough for each other. You know, we'd like, well, let sleeping Christians lie, right? And just keep on moving, right? But uh, he's, he's, he wakes them up. And um, they do not pay attention to him. They basically say everybody's got to live their own life. Live and let live is about what they say. Leave us alone. And then he moves on. And Christian is troubled to think that men in that danger should so little esteem the kindness of him that so freely offered to help them, both by awakening of them and counseling of them and proffering to help them off with their chains. So basically he says, how could they not listen to this advice? But there are people that will not. You see somebody's danger, you try to warn them and they don't listen. And so he takes a minute to marvel at that. But he's not going to he's not going to wait or worry about them. They go back to sleep and he continues on his journey. The next two that he meets are formalist and hypocrisy. And these are very important people for us to consider. Formalist to John Bunyan, this means somebody who fits into the forms of Christian the Christian religion. What is a formalist in Christianity? Okay. A moralistic person. Say again. A traditionalist, or I thought I heard you say, but close to it, a ritualist, right? And what, how does somebody like that live out their Christianity? Right. Will they go to church? Religion. Oh, absolutely. Religiously. That's a good way to put it. They'll be there. <laughs> oh, they'll be there day or week after week. They're a formalist. They're going to be there. All right? Um, and... Yet, we, we're going to find out more about them, but they're, they have what it says, a form of godliness, but they deny its power. They don't have the transforming power of the indwelling Holy Spirit. And what about hypocrisy? What's a hypocrite? The pretender. Somebody wearing a masquerade, somebody wearing a costume. And so these two are not genuine believers. All right, well, anyway, he finds them, and how does he see them? Well, they're jumping the wall, right? Coming in from the left side. Whoosh! And he said, what are you doing? You don't get in the road that way. There's a gate back there, you know, by Beelzebub's castle and the, you know, the arrow, you know, and all that. Knock and it will be open to you. You don't jump the wall. What are you doing? And uh, Christian asked them, he says, Why came you in not at the gate, which standeth at the beginning of this way? Know you not that it is written that he that cometh not in by the door but climbeth in some other way is the same as a thief and a robber? Right? How did you get in here? Well, you jumped the wall. So it's a key question. The formalist and hypocrisy said, uh, that to go to the gate for the entrance was by all their countrymen counted too far about. It's too long a journey to go all the way there. I'll just jump the wall, right? So it's just for ease. It's for convenience sake, right? And so they're going to jump the wall. It's too much trouble. And so it says they made a shortcut of it. Christian, but will it not be counted a trespass against the Lord of the city whither we are bound to violate his revealed will? And they told him that as, as far as them, he need not trouble his head about it for what they did they had a long-standing custom for it from their city they've been doing it this way for years years and years and years and years and it'll be fine don't worry about us oh my goodness 
Christian said, will your practice stand a trial at law? Will you survive judgment day? That's what he's asking. They told him that since our custom is so long a standing one, is above a thousand years, it would doubtless now be admitted as a thing legal by any impartial judge. And besides, said they, if we get into the way, what's the matter? Which way we get in? If we are in, we are in. Thou art but in the way who, as we perceive, came in at the gate. We also are in the way that came in by jumping the wall. What difference does it make how you get in as long as you're walking the way? Now, this is so important. You can be traveling or journeying along the Christian way for a while with people who got in other than at the gate. The gate is faith in Christ. It's that narrow gate that strips you of all self-righteousness and makes you realize that apart from the death and the resurrection of Christ, you would have no hope of salvation. They skipped all that. Basically, they're just like pliable, whatever. They just made it a little further. You know, the shortcut went around the slew of despond. They never dealt with their sin. They just jump in and they start walking. And I guess what I'm saying is it could even represent, in some cases, unregenerate church membership, where you can have people in the church carrying out a, a, a form of religion, but they never came in at the gate. And that's a very troubling thing. Now, the thing is, though, that what's going to separate out the believer from the unbeliever is trial. It's always the same thing. And so they're going to come up to the hill difficulty. But before they do, Christian shows three ways that he's different than formalist and hypocrisy. Number one, he notes that he has the coat of righteousness on and they have none. Number two, he notes that he has a mark on his forehead and they do not have it. Number three, he notes that he is holding a scroll in his hand and they have none. And he says, what are you going to give at the gate at the celestial city when they ask for it? You'll have nothing to give. Well, they get to the hill difficulty, and this is what he says. I beheld then that as they went on till they came to the foot of the hill difficulty, at the bottom of which there was a spring. There were also in the same place two other ways besides that which came straight from the gate. One turned to the left hand and the other to the right at the bottom of the hill. But, listen, the narrow way lay right up the hill. What does that tell you? You got an easy way going to the left, you got an easy way going to the right, but the, the straight and narrow way, where does it go? Straight up the hill, right? Well, formalists and hypocrisy come up there and one of them goes left and one of them goes right. It's looking very attractive at that point. They're trying to avoid difficulty. Isn't that their whole modus operandi? Isn't that the, why they didn't go all the way around to the wicked gate? They're trying to make it easy. They're jumping the fence, right? So when they come to difficulty, they are not gonna go straight up the hill. Okay, how so? That's right. And there's no internal converting power. I think so. I think there's, there, there is that aspect uh, in the Catholic, uh, Roman Catholic faith. There's also that aspect in the Southern Baptist churches as well, where people can follow those rituals year after year and um, not truly be regenerate. It's there in all of the uh, denominations. And that's the, the thing that we're trying to avoid is having a form of religion, a form of godliness, but denying its true converting power, which is the indwelling spirit who uh, shows us our true need of Christ. All right, well, he goes up the hill. Uh, Formalists and hypocrisy uh, go down the t path danger and destruction. But it says here, I looked then after Christian to see him go up the hill where I perceived he fell from running to going and from going to clamoring upon his hands and knees because of the steepness of the place. So at first he'd been running, then he's walking, then he's crawling, literally. That's how difficult this road is. It represents trials in the Christian life. Now about midway to the top of the hill was a pleasant arbor made by the Lord of the hill for refreshing of weary travelers. Thither, therefore, Christian got, where he also sat down to rest him. Then he pulled his roll out of his bosom and read therein to his comfort. He now also began afresh to take a review of the coat or garment that was given to him as he stood by the cross. Thus pleasing himself a while, he fell at last into a slumber and thence into a fast sleep, which detained him in that place until it was almost night. And in his sleep, the roll fell out of his hand. Now as he was sleeping, there came one to him and awakened him, saying, Go to the ant, thou sluggard. Consider her ways and be wise. So now he's like uh, sloth and, and presumption and the other guy. What's the other guy? Sluggard or whatever. Simple. He's falling asleep. Now here's the, here's the tough thing, okay? 
Hill difficulty is a tough, tough part of your life. You're going up and it's hard. Halfway up, what does Christian find as he's going there? What does he find in there? He finds a resting place. And he rests there. Is that all right? Well, that's what it's for, right? But what went wrong there? What happened in the resting place? He went to sleep. And he looked at his righteousness, his robe of righteousness. He reads the scroll for a while. He's feeling very good about himself at this particular moment, isn't he? He's feeling comfortable, feeling confident. And he slips into presumption, a presumptive sleep. And this is the whole point. It wasn't meant for that. That resting place was meant to renew and refresh your strength to continue the journey up the hill. There's more hill to go. And then someone wakes him up up with a scripture, Proverbs 6, 6, go to the ant, you sluggard, wake up. And with that, Christian suddenly started up and sped on his way. And he went apace till he came to the top of the hill. Now, when he was got to the top of the hill, there came two two men running to meet him named Timorous and Mistrust. Now, timorous means uh, fearful. Mistrust means unbelieving. And fearful and unbelieving are running away from a danger. And they tell him what the danger is. There are two huge lions on each side of the road up there. And there's no way you're going to get past. And so we're going back. And so Christian is very dismayed to hear this. But he knows he can't go back because what's at the end of going back? City of destruction. He can't go there. So he's stuck. Then said Christian, you make me afraid. But whither shall I fly to be safe? If I go back to my own country, that is prepared for fire and brimstone and I shall certainly perish there. If I can get to the celestial city, I am sure to be in safety there. I must venture. To go back is nothing but death. To go forward is fear of death and life everlasting beyond it. I will yet go forward. That's a reasoning of a Christian person. It's a reasoning of Peter, for example, after the teaching on eat my flesh and drink my blood, right? Everybody's abandoning Jesus that day. Then Jesus turns to the 12, and what does he say? You also going to go? And what did Peter say in response? Nowhere else to go. If I leave you, I've got nothing. All right? You have the words of eternal life. Footnote, I don't know what you meant by eat my flesh and drink my blood. That's troubling. But I've got nowhere else to go. Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And that's about his reasoning here. I can't go back. I must continue on. And so he continues on. Go ahead. That is so true. And and that's why we need to nurse and to strengthen our hope. We have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure, it says in the book of Hebrews. And that that keeps you stable and keeps you going. Well, about this time, he wants to be comforted. And what's his usual way of being comforted? Well, to reach into his cloak there and pull out his roll. So he reaches in and feels for his roll that he might read therein and be comforted. But he felt and found it not. Have you ever lost something that was valuable to you? I mean, where is it? You know what I'm saying? Your wallet or something like that. Have you ever lost your wallet? You feel for it and it's gone? That's a terrifying feeling. Me? Yeah, it was me. Thank you, Jack. Why don't you tell us that story? Would you mind doing that? right? Yes, that was true. I've lost my wallet many times. My wife can tell you all about that, too. So... Speaking from experience, it's a terrifying feeling. Moving on. Uh, Then was Christian in great distress and knew not what to do. He felt for his role, and it wasn't there, and he didn't know where it was. For he he wanted that which uh, used to relieve, relieve him and to encourage him, and that which should have been his pass into the celestial city. Here, therefore, he began to be much perplexed and knew not what to do. At last he bethought himself that he had slept in the arbor that is on the side of the hill, and falling down upon his knees, he asked God for, for forgiveness for that his foolish fact, and he went back to look for his role. So what's the first step for Christian at this point? He's made a big mistake. He's done something wrong, and he's paying the price. Yeah, he confesses his sins. He confesses his sin. But what's fascinating about this whole thing is this whole sinful sleep goes on for another several pages. I mean, he's dealing with this thing like for the next paragraph after paragraph after paragraph. And again, I mentioned to you either last week or the week before, I'm so convicted when I read Pilgrim's Progress to realize how deeply Bunyan felt his sin 
and dealt with it and how lightly I tend to deal with mine. Hey, he confessed his sin here. What else is there to do, right? I said I was sorry. Well, it's not that simple. You've got to go back and get it and there's going to be a cost, a payment to what happened to you. And that's what he's dealing with here. So anyway, all the way that he goes back, who can sufficiently set forth the sorrow of Christian's heart? Sometimes he sighed. Sometimes he wept. Oftentimes he chided himself for being so foolish to fall asleep in that place, which was erected only for a little refreshment for his weariness. Thus, therefore, he went back carefully looking on this side and on that all the way as he went, if perhaps he might find his role that had been his comfort so many times in his journey. He went thus till he came again within sight of the arbor where he sat and slept. But that sight only renewed his sorrow the more by bringing again even afresh his evil of sleeping unto his mind tremendous grief over sin james chapter 4 verse 9 and 10 says grieve mourn and wail change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom i said before that that along with cut off your right hand if it causes you sin and gouge out your eye if it causes sin are the most under applied and underused verses in the christian life what do i want to grieve mourn and wail for i thought i was a christian i'm supposed to rejoice in the lord always yes I don't think this is punishment. And I think what we're going to find is this is protection. It's not punishment. It's protection. What's it, how is he protecting himself if he deals seriously with sin? How does that actually protect you? Keeps you from sinning again. And to remember. And that's why I say that memory has to play a role in the Christian life or else discipline, Hebrews 12 discipline, would be ineffective. Think about it. If you literally had zero memory of past sins ever then how effective would discipline be for that? You would have no memory, and so therefore God wouldn't discipline you because what's the point? You won't remember it, right? But the point of discipline is to say, ooh, that hurt. I remember that. I won't do that again. And so that's what I'm saying. You're right, though. It's a balance. You don't want to go into morbid introspection so you forget the cross. You're doing it for protection. You do it so you won't do this again. That's the point. And once that protection is there, God gives you relief and freedom from any sense of that, of that agony. But anyway, he's going over it, and he says, O wretched man that I am, that I should sleep in this day in the daytime, that I should sleep in the midst of the difficulty, that I should so indulge the flesh and use that, re that rest to ease for my flesh, which the Lord of the hill erected only for the temporary relief of the spirits of pilgrims. And then he says this, How many steps have I taken in vain? And he says, I traveled this ground. I will have traveled it three times, which was only designed to be covered once. I go this whole rest of the way up the hill and then up to the top and start journeying. And then he notices that his scroll is lost. He's got to go back over that same ground and then one more time back up again. What a waste of time. And that's the whole point, is that sin in the Christian life is a terrible waste. Because while you're in sin, you're not fruitful for God. And you just wasted that number of days where you were out of fellowship with God. You didn't, you didn't store up treasure in heaven. You didn't produce fruit in keeping with the repentance. It was a waste. And so he goes back. Now, in the next little section, he describes what the scroll is. Now, by this time, he, he was come to the arbor again, where for a while he sat down and wept. But at last, as Christian would have it, looking sorrowfully down under the settle, there he espied his roll, which, that which he, with trembling and haste, catched up and put into his bosom. <laughs> Can you imagine? There it is! You know? My wallet! I found it! <laughs> I won't tell you where it was. But anyway, you're so rejoicing. And, and it says, But who can tell how joyful this man was when he had gotten his role again? For this role, listen, was the assurance of his life and acceptance at the desired haven. This is a major Puritan doctrine. The role was assurance of salvation. And this is one of the things. You can lose assurance. Assurance comes and goes. You cannot lose justification. Do you know the difference between the two? What's the difference between justification and assurance? Mike, what's the difference? Justification is a, a done deal. You're, you're being just by the 
Yes, it's your perception of your state before God. I think that's got to do with the man in the iron cage, right? It's your perception of where you are with God. Is that important or not? Is it important to feel yourself justified before God? Yes. <laughs> it's not of highest importance. The fact of justification is more important than your sense of the justification. But the sense of the justification is everything for your fruitfulness. Do you know what I'm saying? Because if you don't know for sure whether you're justified, if you don't know for sure whether you're saved, basically everything else stops until you zero in on that issue. You see what I'm saying? Be yeah. Because you'll act or fail to act based on that perception. That's right. Go ahead. So true. Take a minute and look at Hebrews 10.35. Somebody read this for me. Hebrews 10, 35 and 36, those two verses. Hebrews 10, 35, 36. So do not throw away your confidence. It will be richly rewarded. You need to persevere so that when you have done the will of God, you will receive what is promised. So what strong advice, Landis, does he give us there in verse 35? What is confidence in Hebrews 10.35? Could it be assurance? Yeah, I think it's, it's basically defined in Hebrews 11. Mm -hmm. An assurance of faith, a confidence that God will reward you, that he is well pleased with you, that he loves you. And he says in Hebrews 10.35, don't throw it away like it's nothing. How then do we throw away our assurance? How do we throw away confidence? When we get out of fellowship through sin. Sin, that's it. <laughs> You throw it away through sin. You come to a fork in the road and, and if you disobey, what happens to your confidence as a Christian, your assurance? It goes down. And if you keep persisting in that pattern, it could get to the point where that tank's empty. You know what I'm saying? You could end up like the man in the cage and you have just zero confidence before God, no assurance. Now, if you're truly a child of God, your justification hasn't changed one bit. It is set in heaven, but you don't know much about that right now, do you? You sure aren't feeling it. Yeah. Yeah, I do. You can be sorry for sin and know the whole time that you're forgiven. You can say, what a waste. And you're seeing it in terms of fruitfulness. You know, I, my state before God is fine, but I wasted time. I had to go over these, this ground three times. I should already have been at the Palace Beautiful by now. Definitely I should have. We only have five minutes left. Should have been by the Palace Beautiful by now. But anyway, <laughs> you know what I mean. Anyway, the point is i got to stop the long reviews at the beginning. But uh, So... Um, the fact of the matter is there is a distinction. You can grieve over the sin and know the whole time you're justified, but you wasted time. You, you, you grieve the Lord, and it hurts you emotionally, but you're not doubting that you're forgiven. But what I'm saying is after a while it starts to mush, doesn't it? You keep coming again and again to the same stuff, and after a while you start saying, really, I don't know what's going on with me. Sin does seem to have the upper hand, and I don't seem to be able to resist. And who am I, really? And then after a while you start, things start to crumble and slip away from you. Don't do that. That's the whole point. Because when you get to that point, it's really tough to turn that around. Very, very tough. Because you know all the verses and, and you're, you know, your heart gets hard. So that's why just again and again Jesus says, if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It just isn't worth it. Stop, stop sinning. So don't throw away your confidence. So he gets his role and he goes back. And as he's going, he's, he's happy, he's glad. But guess what happens? As he's traveling over the road, the sun goes down and it starts getting dark. And he hasn't faced the lions yet. So he's got to go between the two lions in the dark, which he would not have had to do if he hadn't fallen asleep. And so he falls back again to chiding himself and saying, what a waste, look at this. And so he's beating himself over that. But as it turns out, the lions are chained actually, but Christian couldn't see it. They actually were no threat if he stays on the path, by the way, okay? If you get off the path, you know, you've got yourself some problems, but if you stay on the path, and so as he gets near the palace, beautiful, Porter, a guy named Watchful, calls out and says, don't worry about the lions. You know, he's actually starting to turn back a little bit. He's starting to say, I don't know how I'm going to get through. And he says, do you have so little courage? 
You know, there's always this little, you know, come on, where's your, where's your courage? You know, he says the lions are chained. That's the secret of the place here, okay? Walk right through the middle and you'll be fine. And so he does. He gets through. Now, as he comes to the palace beautiful, he comes to another place of rest. And it's a beautiful place. I believe that this palace beautiful that he's about to enter represents the church. I think that it represents good, solid fellowship in a godly local church. The benefits that come to you, the refreshing, the godly conversations, the equipping, the going over it with scripture. And by the time he's done at the palace beautiful and set back on his way, he's ready to go again. He's renewed. He's refreshed. Isn't that what church should be? I hate it that it ends up the opposite way. You come in strong and whatever you come in and by the time you get out, it's like, whoa. You know, I mean, that's not the way it should be. It should be that out in the world, you're fighting all your battles and then you come in here and you get refreshed and built up with godly conversation, with the scripture, with encouragement. That's the way it should be. And so he knocks on the door and he says, who are you and what do you want? Well, my name is Christian. Uh, Originally, my name was Graceless. I came from the city of destruction. I want to go... Um, I want to go to the celestial city. And then Porter asks him, well, how'd you come here so late? The sun is set. Uh-oh. <laughs> well, you see, uh, this is how it was. You see, I fell asleep, shouldn't have done it. So anyway, these things keep coming back up. Well, all right, I'll call one of the virgins of this place who will, if she likes your talk, that's an interesting expression, if she likes your talk, bring you into the rest of the family according to the rules of the house. Now think about that. She's going to come down and interview him and talk to him. And if he talks like a believer and answers questions in a right way, she will admit him into the house by the rules of the house. That reminds me very much of a membership process, right? You're not going to take in just anybody. You want to find out and be sure that people are believers. Why accept them into fellowship if they're not? And so she comes down and her name is Discretion. And she's going to question. And so she asked him where he was, whither he was going, and he told her, She asked him how he got into the way, and he told her. She asked him what he had seen and met with in the way, and he told her. And last, she asked him his name, and so he said, It is Christian, and I have so much the more the desire to lodge here tonight, because by what I perceive, this place was built by the Lord of the hill for the relief and uh, encouragement and security of the the pilgrims. And so he's basically got to give his testimony, right? How did you get here? What's your name? What's going on in your life? Tell me your story. And so discretion grills him. And so finally she smiles and lets him in and uh, her sisters, I guess, come to, the, to meet him and their names are Prudence, Piety, and Charity. And these are some tough ladies, I want to tell you. I mean, they're going to come and they're going to have some godly conversation. Now, there's a lot that we could uh, talk about here, but I'm not going to go over it. I want to bring you to one particular discussion here. And that is the discussion that Prudence has with him over sanctification. Prudence asks him a few questions. And Prudence says, do you sometimes think of the country from whence you came? Do you think about what it used to be like for you in the city of destruction? Yes, said Christian, but with much shame and detestation. Truly, if I had been mindful of that country from whence I came out, I might have had opportunity to have returned. But now I desire a better country, a heavenly one. That's the book of Hebrews is all that is. He said, I don't like that place. I left it. But then Prudence says, now listen, do you not yet bear away with you some of the things that you were conversant with back then? Don't you carry some habits, some thought patterns, some things with you from that city? Yes, said Christian, but greatly against my will. Oh, how I wish I could lose those habits, he says. He says, especially my inward and carnal cogitation. Somebody translate carnal cogitations for me into modern English. (laughs) Fleshly thoughts, evil thoughts, thinking in a carnal way, thinking in a worldly way. I wish I could get rid of that, he says, with which all my countrymen as well as myself were delighted. We used to love to think that way. But now all those things are actually my grief. And might I but choose my own things, I would choose never to think of those things again. Might I to choose my own things. What does that mean? What does he mean when he says, might I to choose my own things? I would never think of them again. What is he saying there? Romans 7. Tell me about that, Mike. Why can't he choose his own things? 
Why not? I thought we had freedom in these matters. I thought we could up and change our hearts. But you can't, can you? You can't suddenly lose your sin nature. It's going to battle you every step of the way. And that's what he says. If I could, I would get rid of those thought patterns and never think of them even one more time again. But I can't, and they torment me. Prudence says, do you not find sometimes as if those things were vanquished as other times are your perplexity? In other words, don't you sometimes gain victory over them? Oh, yes, I do. But that is seldom, said Christian. Did you hear that? I do. I have good days. (laughs) But, you know, it's not that often. They are to me golden hours in which such things happen to me. Don't you find that encouraging? If poor Christian says, only seldom do I have those pure days in which I'm just thinking only of godly things. Then, Jack, you'll love this part. Can you remember by by what means you find your annoyances at times as if they were vanquished? What does it? How do you win? How do you conquer these things? Yes, I will tell you, when I think what I saw at the cross, that will do it. And when I look upon my broidered coat, that will do it. And also when I look into the roll that I carry in my bosom, that will do it. And when my thoughts wax warm about the place that I'm going, that will do it. Isn't that strong? Those are four things. When I do these things, when I look at Christ on the cross, when I think about the righteousness that I have before God, when I think about my assurance of salvation, when I think about what heaven is going to be like, I'm able to drive out the thoughts of wickedness and evil. And so they talk. And then one final thing, a conversation between charity and Christian. And this is almost brutal, I think. She begins to ask him about his family. (laughs) I mean, and she's relentless too. I mean, she's a tough lady, um, Charity, for for having a name like Charity. Um, She says, have you a family? Are you a married man? I have a wife and four small children. Footnote, at the time that he wrote this, Bunyan had that exact same thing. And he was in prison, away from them. And he said, being away from my family is like the plucking of the flesh from my bones. That's how much it hurt for him to be away from his family. So he actually is kind of transferring a little bit onto the things he's writing. Yes, I have a wife and four small children. And why did you not bring them along with you? She asks. Then Christian wept and said, Oh, how willingly I would have done it. But they were all of them utterly averse to my going on pilgrimage. That's, by the way, the second question she's asked him now about his family. Question number three. But you should have talked to them and should have endeavored to show them the, the danger of being left behind. Christians, so I did. And I told them also what God had shown to me of the destruction of our city. But I, I seemed to them as one that mocked and they believed me not. Question four. And did you pray to God that he would bless your counsel to them? Did you pray for them? Yes, and that with much affection. For you must think that my wife and poor children were very dear unto me. Five. But did you tell them of your own sorrow and fear of destruction? For I suppose that destruction was visible enough to you. Yes, said Christian, over and over and over, that they might also see my fears in my countenance, in my tears, also in my trembling, under the apprehension of the judgment that did hang over our heads. But it was not sufficient to prevail with them to come with me. Question six. But what could they say for themselves why they came not? She's not letting it go, is she? Why? My wife was afraid of losing this world and my children were given to the foolish delights of youth. So what by one, one by one thing and what one by another they left me to wander in this manner alone. Question seven. But did you not, listen to this, did you not with your vain life damp all that you by words used by way of persuasion to bring them away with you? Uh, let me translate. Did you not speak one way and live another? You told them about Christ, but were you living it in front of them? Your family, the ones that saw you, knew you the best. Wow. Indeed, said Christian, I cannot commend my life, for I am conscious to myself of many failings therein. I know also that a man by his conversation may soon overthrow by what argument or persuasion he doth labor to fasten upon others for good. Translate, I know that how you live speaks more powerfully than the words you say. And you can overthrow all of the preaching you do by how you live. I know that. Yet I can say... I was very wary of giving them occasion by any unseemly action to make them averse to going on pilgrimage. And then after that, Charity says, you have delivered your soul from their blood. Now, what do I get out of all this? Well, is her questioning going to be any more careful than Christ's on Judgment Day? Think about it. You have to give an account, right? 
Will he not ask you about relationships? Will he not ask you about opportunities? Will he not ask you about your work or your family or this or that occasion? Will he not ask you? Of course he will. And so the fact of the matter is, all of this is coming out of Ezekiel chapter 3, in which he says, I've set you as a watchman on the wall, and if you warn them, you're free of your blood, of their blood. But if you do not open your mouth or say anything, then their blood is upon you. That's very serious, isn't it? But Charity grills him about it, and ultimately she says, you're free of, your blo- of their blood. Beautifully, they do come along. Isn't that wonderful? Part two, all right? God is gracious in Christiana, and the four children, they travel and they make it. Well, they have supper. They have a rich feast. They sit down. They enjoy the time. Uh, they think about Christ. They have godly conversation. That's one of the things I love about this. Their fellowship is not like our fellowship, right? When they get together, they talk of Christ. They talk of heaven. They talk of godly things. They fill their conversation with good things. Well, I'm going to stop there. We're about five or seven minutes over, and we'll pick up more at the Palace Beautiful next time. As I said, I think the summation here is of places of rest and refreshment and what they're to be used for and how God uses them to renew us and strengthen us in our lives. Any final comments about what we've talked about tonight? All right. Scott, would you mind closing us in prayer tonight? Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build His kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.